You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And this is Season 3, Episode 9 of Vernacular Podcast. Yes, and we are excited to get to our guests. We are not going to talk to you for very long, but first we wanted to bring you multiple tips of the week. That's right. So those of you who have listened to Vernacular Podcast before know that Nathan and Sadie have joined us on Vernacular. In Season 1. Yep. And they will be joining us again in Season 4, so stay tuned for that. But uh, kind of a crazy story here. Nathan and Sadie and their daughter, Pippa, were actually in a pretty serious car accident a couple weeks ago. They're all okay, but uh, Nathan actually, he's still recovering uh, in the hospital, I believe, and he sent us some tips of the week, so things that we can pass on for other people so that if they ever find themselves in a similar situation, they will end up better off. Okay, so the crazy thing is this was a, a bad car accident. I've seen a picture of the car afterwards. It really got wrecked. Nathan and Sadie and Pippa... Uh, were in a rollover and a spin. That's uh, they were T-boned by another driver who I think was going at like 60 miles an hour. Wow. Um, they were going about 70. Uh, the other driver re- uh, blew through a stop sign, which is how it happened. Wow. So, so through no fault of their own. Right. So really crazy stuff. It could happen to any of us. So anyway, here's what Nathan says. First, a seatbelt cutter is a good thing to have, but you have to make sure that it's secured in the car someplace you can grab it after a rollover and a spin. They had theirs in the closed center console, uh, but it flew out. So fortunately, always prepared. Uh, is that the Boy Scout motto, I think? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nathan had a pocket knife in his pocket. Wow. So uh, Sadie was able to get that, and uh, or maybe one of, the, one of the paramedics was able to get that and cut Pippa out of her car seat. Okay, wow. Okay, so speaking of car seats, uh, Nathan also says that um, – Pippa's car seat is convertible, so it can do rear-facing or forward-facing. Um, but he used what's called the latch system. And latch is an acronym. I forget what it stands for. But because it was well-secured and properly secured, Pippa's absolutely fine. And so Nathan just says, make sure you follow the manufacturer's instructions, and then you can get it checked for free by your fire department, and they'll make sure that it's installed correctly. Okay, third, Nathan had some Advil in his backpack. Uh, he always prepared, again carries this around for emergencies, and he hit his head pretty badly in the crash, I think, so when he came to, he used some Advil, but when the paramedics got there, he found out that was a bad idea because if you use your own Advil and self-medicate, it could interfere with the medications that you would really need at the hospital, kind of like the stronger painkillers, so they told him he shouldn't have done that, so Hmm. if you're ever in that situation, don't do that. And then this one's kind of cool. I think I might have talked on this podcast before about Eddie Bauer jeans and how much I love Eddie Bauer jeans. Nathan does too, apparently. He had just bought a brand new pair, but he was in this accident, and the paramedics had to actually cut the jeans off of him to get him out of the car. The cool thing is Nathan uh, wrote to Eddie Bauer, and they said they would replace the jeans for free. That's amazing. So go Eddie Bauer. great customer service. Yeah, go Eddie Bauer. You can't go wrong. So uh, anyway, we're very glad that Nathan and Sadie and Pippa are all safe and sound. We will continue to keep them in our thoughts and prayers, and we hope our listeners will too. And Nathan, thank you very much for those tips of the week. Yeah, thank you so much. And when you guys are all recovered, we want you in season four. Definitely. Just let us know when you're ready. All right. Well, that's pretty much all we have. We are going to talk to Kevin, who's been on our show before, one of our contributors, about friendship. And then we're going to bring Ishan back to talk more sports. 
And with Kevin, we're going to talk about the classical idea of friendship, and we were going to bring on another contributor as well, yes. but those plans fell through. <laughs> yes. We were supposed to have a roundtable discussion with Kevin and Muriel, both of both of whom are, are contributors, but Muriel was otherwise detained and delayed and- For a good reason. Unable to join us because she had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so we just wanted to give a little hat tip to Muriel because we missed her presence on the conversation, but we are so glad that she and her new baby are doing well and are healthy and we can't wait to meet that baby all right without further ado kevin all right welcome back to vernacular we are here with kevin our resident classics enthusiast or as i call him our classics expert kevin welcome to the show Hi, thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's great to have you. So uh, you reached out to us, Kevin, and you thought it'd be a good idea to talk about friendship. And because we are the podcast on human flourishing, we thought that would be a very good thing to talk about because friendship is such an important part of having a flourishing human life. And we thought it'd be a really appropriate thing to kick off today's discussion with Aristotle's categorization of the three types of friendship. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, So with with Aristotle, it, it's interesting, I think, because a lot of times we don't um, we we think about philosophy, you know, having these sort of lofty conversations about topics way over our heads, and 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 friendship is is such a a human and and very tactile sort of uh, concept that everyone everyone understands and, and or everyone is familiar with, and uh, we experience it every day, and and in this sort of wonderful statement in his Nicomachean Ethics, uh, Aristotle kicks off this conversation about friendship, talking about how it's it's necessary to life. And he says that without friends, uh, no one would choose to live, even if he possessed all other goods. Wow. And and then he launches into this uh, this conversation about what is friendship and and who are our friends and 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 what does it mean to be friendly and, and to have friendship. And so he he lays out basically three sort of models of friendship and asks, well, what's the, what's the true friendship? And the three definitions he lays out are friends of uh, pleasure, friends of utility, and friends um, in the true form, he calls it, who are um, friends who are attracted to each other because of the good in each other. So in terms of uh, friends of utility, what he's talking about is uh, basically, two people who call them themselves friends because uh, they get something out of the friendship. Namely, um, maybe if you were a politician and there was an individual who could provide you with lots of money or could campaign for you and make you sound really good to the people and provide that good, then that's a friendship of utility. Uh, friendship of pleasure is just something where uh, maybe you're attracted to personality traits and someone like uh, uh, you find someone really funny or witty or clever. And because of that, you enjoy listening to them tell jokes and they enjoy telling you jokes and you both get some pleasure out of that. And therefore, your friendships of pleasure. But Aristotle says that basically those two forms are fleeting because once if we're friends of utility, once I can't provide you with you what you need or want. Uh, you're not my friend anymore. <laughs> or uh, once I'm no longer funny to you, and we're <laughs> friends of pleasure, and I'm not funny all of a sudden because your um, sense of humor has changed, and I'm not funny, then you're going to ditch me, and 
you're going to go be friends with uh, with uh, Colbert or someone like that instead of Kevin. <laughs> cold, so, cold. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's cold and it's changing. Um, but uh, Aristotle, because he says that virtue is timeless and what is good is timeless and unchanging, uh, two people who are friends because they see what is good in the other person and because they love the good in the other person, uh, those two people are, are essentially friends forever because uh, they are going to improve each other. They're going to be um, stimulative of the virtue and the good in the other person. And that is real friendship because that is the timeless and wonderful friendship that he probably shared with uh, someone like Plato, who was his teacher and friend. So I guess my first question is, does Aristotle imply that the first two friendships are necessarily bad or just that the third one is the one most worth pursuing? Uh, that's a great question. And, and he doesn't say the others are bad. He says even um, to an extent they're necessary. Uh, we all need friends who can help us do certain things. And, and we, we are, as humans, we are attracted to what is pleasant. So it's good to have um, that sort of of pleasantry in your life good but, looking uh, funny friends yeah exactly exactly <laughs> which is why i have so many <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I mean i was gonna say i don't think you would have a ton of friends if mm -hmm. the only friend you should have was the true friend right and and he does say that he says that um you know people who uh you know the friends of utility and and the friends of pleasure are common and you can have Lots and lots of those, but uh, yeah, they're the kind of more friend, low maintenance. Exactly, because you don't have to see them all the time. They don't need you all the time per se, and you can you know go to your gathering or party and be in a big group and all derive pleasure from each other or, or utility. But um, but it's hard because in order to have the true friendship, that requires a fostering of trust. It requires time. It requires getting to know the character of the other person. Um, beyond just, oh, they're funny. It's, you know, are they trustworthy? Is this a, a courageous, magnanimous, all the virtues? Um, it's easy to, to start reading this section of the book in a vacuum, but really, you know, you're looking at it's eight books into a 12 book volume, and, and we can't read it, even though we're going to attempt to today, <laughs> uh, completely devoid from the rest of the book but yeah, i just want to read those three paragraphs uh in isolation yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly um but but it, again you know aristotle would say those other the, the utility and and the pleasure they're not bad things in and of themselves but they're not true friendship and and the true friendship will have elements of um of the pleasant friendship or the utilitarian friendship but those will be incidental those are accidental to the core of the true friendship. It's not uh, why you're friends. Exactly. So exactly. based on Aristotle's categorization here, do you think it's fair to say that you could also break it down into uh, a dichotomous categorization, wherein the first two types of friendship, those of utility and pleasure, are friendships that are oriented around the self-interest of each party, whereas the third type, the true friendship, is... Uh, organized around this the other this good yeah it's outside of them right and and really the self-sacrifice of each party as they work to to help the other become more Invest virtuous in each other yeah i mean i'm thinking i think the best example of this would be what we would think of as 
a flourishing marriage where each person is totally committed to sacrificing 100% of themselves for the good of the other person. Yeah. Um, I think that that certainly uh, is an element of it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to, to go swing the pendulum all the way to the side of, you know, self-sacrificing and um, because even in this model of, um, of a perfect friendship or a great friendship, uh, there is a bit of self-servience in it in the sense that you both want to have that virtue. Right. Well, exactly. yeah, like Sally was exactly. saying, it's oriented towards the good. So you both want to pursue the good. Exactly. So if, if it's not necessarily, um, if it's not necessarily self-sacrificing, it is at least externally motivated, um, I think is, is maybe a good way of looking at it in the sense of the good being something that is completely independent of the self, or if not completely independent of self, has an element is independent of the self. Uh, whereas utility, you can direct that immediately back to yourself and um, almost only yourself. Same thing with um, pleasure. It would be strange to describe you um, deriving pleasure that is somehow um, external. Like it's not you're feeling it, but you are. I, I don't. I don't know. I guess that would be a weird conversation. But but yeah, I think there there is a, a, a what you're saying um, is not. Um, would not be foreign to what Aristotle is is presenting, I don't think. So maybe it's more of a spectrum then that you can have friendships of utility that are just really cold-hearted and just about the transaction, <laughs> but others where it's not quite that bad, just as you could have friend, friends who are true friends and who are aiming at virtue and goodness, and they might have that element of self-sacrifice. It might be the really amazing marriage that Zach was talking about, or it could be something where they are just both two study partners and they're really trying to mm -hmm. seek after the good and the virtuous. And it, it doesn't, it's not as deep as, as it could be. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. And that makes me think that relationships could also change over time and become yeah, different yeah. types of friendships, perhaps maybe one that starts as a friendship of pleasure. Yeah, you could start actually, off being workout buddies. Right, because if I'm not mistaken, Aristotle said that actually young people are especially prone to the friendship organized around pleasure because young people are better looking and more energetic <laughs> and they'd be more attracted to those types of things that would organize that relationship. But maybe as those people age, their friendship actually becomes something that's organized less around charm and wit and attractiveness and more around uh, or, or an organizing virtue. Yeah, so I, yeah, because I, I, this makes me think about the question that I've been thinking about in preparation for this podcast, and that's is Aristotle right? Like, are these really reflected in our friendships today? Do we experience these three types of friendship? How often do we experience them? And, and I think what you just said, I've, I've experienced in my own life where rarely does a friendship start off being just this true friendship? I can think of one time maybe in my life where there was just this instant connection where we were focused on virtue and goodness. That was when we met. I <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But I have to say when we first met, it was definitely – uh, because you were good looking, Sally. So that would not be the third category. <laughs> and for me, category. it was because you be were funny. Category. It was because you were funny. So, yeah. So that was pleasure. But but other times, most other times, I've had a friendship that started off because of some sort of pleasurable activity or mm -hmm. purpose, utility, we're study partners or something like that. And then it's grown. It's grown and developed and deepened as we 
realize commonalities and together seek after the good, right. something like that. So th- that to me seems accurate. Yeah, and and I'm I'm fairly confident that uh, Aristotle would agree with that um, because he even has a line there in, in chapter three of this book where he says that a wish for friendship arises arises swiftly, but friendship itself does not. Um, and and again, he goes back to the time element and talks about how you know you have to get to know someone first, and you have to because you have to experience their character, you have to get to know their character, and and that involves. Um, that involves trust. And I, I think as you're pointing out that it's one of those things where you don't walk up to someone and say, hello, you are a virtuous person. And I too am a virtuous person. And we should go talk about virtue and engage in a perfect platonic relationship. And you know, that would be so strange, but that's a does. good conversation um, starter. You know, if I, if I could start every friendship that way, I, I would. I would. <laughs> and maybe so. you wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yes, let's talk yeah. about these models of friendship in the digital age. So Facebook, mm-hmm. the platform most commonly associated with the word friend, mostly because mm-hmm. that's the term that they gave everyone uh, gave, gave to the contacts that everyone has on their network. So I think LinkedIn has connections. Uh, Twitter has followers. Facebook has friends. And obviously this label, includes all three types of Aristotle's friendship. I guess the question that is most interesting to me is whether or not social media, to include Facebook and all of its ilk, has enhanced our ability to have true friendships. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure off the top of my head of it, the answer to the, that question, but I do think it's enhanced our ability to have the other two kinds of friendships. Mm-hmm. I think in that's the, definitely true. In the yeah. sense that because of Facebook, you have these connections that you can use, and so that's utility – that you can call upon when you need something. And, uh, and LinkedIn makes that very clear. Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn, that's why definitely. LinkedIn doesn't even pretend that they're right. actual true friends. It's right. just, mm-hmm. hey, here are your connections. Here are the people who are going to get you your job. Right. right. And then utility, I mean, friend, pleasure, you maybe just stay in touch just for certain pleasurable activities, for getting together, like you're in a group or an event together. and Or you share a lot of funny YouTube videos. Yeah, or mm-hmm. pictures or something like that. So it's definitely enhanced our ability to have those two. At least that's that's what I'll say at first. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that's I think that is uh, a very truthful um, kind of analysis of it. And and as you pointed out, um, you know, it allows you to essentially derive utility or pleasure from a lot more sources and geographically disparate sources. You don't have to, you know, you don't I don't have to sit next to Zach and hear him tell me a, a joke and kind of have to deal with all That's the, the negatives that are associated with that. <laughs> hearing me tell a, just, hearing me tell a dead joke is just a horrible experience. Yeah. I would not wish to. <laughs> but um, but to the question of whether or not it enhances our um, ability to kind of foster the the what Aristotle would call the true kind of friendship, I, I think it's difficult because I think uh, in, in times it it might allow a friendship of this sort that's already blossomed to be, be um, upkept in a, in a sense where there's a geographical divide between the two people because, uh, again, like with a lot of things that Aristotle talks about, friendship is not just a state of existence or being, it's an activity. And an activity requires more activity and a stimulation of the activity. And if you are 
detached from one another, then that has decreased your ability to foster that activity and friendship and, and continue to cultivate each other's character and get to know each other deeper and more and, and on a daily basis. Um, and he, he talks about how if the location, a, a, a disparity in location dissolves not friendship in, the, in sort of the unqualified sense, but it's activity. And so it can threaten um, a friendship by the lack of activity. And while you can't ever get that true, you know, we live together, we, we spend our days together sort of friendship from Facebook, it at least keeps the activity level low and kind of on a low simmer. So maybe it would be easier to pick it back up in, in the future. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think, too, so you're saying it provides this opportunity to maintain existing friendships. It could also provide an opportunity to start a friendship. Um, but I don't think that it's going to help you grow the friendship. So yeah, I'm thinking I'm thinking of me and Zach because we interacted initially over That's Facebook example, yeah. after meeting in person, but then we interacted over Facebook. Um, but then it quickly went off Facebook and mm -hmm. Facebook itself wouldn't have been the vehicle to our growing a deeper friendship or relationship. Right. And so you're not going to get out of zone one or two. Right. Facebook. And I mean, right. cards on the table. I am no longer on Facebook. I haven't been on Facebook for two <gasps> years now. <laughs> what? And I just got to the point where I felt like it wasn't it wasn't benefiting me in any way. And those friendships that I really wanted to maintain, I would be able to maintain without the help of Facebook. And mm -hmm. and so but that was just I mean, that's just my personal opinion, my personal experience. Yeah, I think that's um, definitely the, the point about providing new opportunities for friendship is well taken. I think that's a very, um, very good point. And, and something that interests me or, or something that um, kind of I, I think about is sometimes what is the effect of this on our usage of words? Um, and, and maybe it's, it's nitpicky or curmudgeonly of me, but sometimes I, uh, I, I wonder what we're, we do to our language when we start modifying our usage of terms and how a friend is, oftentimes a very loosely used word now um, where, you know, my friend so-and-so who, and then in parentheses, I've never met, never seen, never really <laughs> talked right. to, but we share cat pictures on Facebook, Yeah, um, which is fine. Like we, we've talked to, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But then you talk about the use of the word friends and, and kind of arises in the back of my mind, this sort of fear or thought, um, you know, a word like, like gentleman, which is a word that, uh, that C.S. Lewis often criticizes because, uh, he would say, you know, gentleman is a word without meaning anymore because we don't have a gentry. We don't have men of the gentry. So when you say, when you use the word gentleman, you're no longer referring to a member of the landed gentry and the nobility. You're just using that now as a very loose, loosely defined or undefined word that really just means someone who is nice and whose company I enjoy. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think definitely the, the term friend is a confusing one because you someone could refer to someone as their friend and you have no idea what that means. That could be right. a Facebook friend. <laughs> that could be lifelong friend. That could be someone they share their heart and soul with all the time or it could be someone they you know see once a year and never talk to you otherwise and it's very superficial. So yeah, I think it, it definitely requires a lot of clarification in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Kevin, your mention of C.S. Lewis made me think of 
uh, an essay that I know the three of us have talked about before, and that's um, actually it's not an essay; it's an essay form now. But it was originally an address he gave at the, at the University of London in 1944, um, and it was called the Inner Ring. And in this, he talked about how the motivating force for so much of human activity is actually social. That is, men and women have done most of the things that they have done, good and bad, throughout history in order to permeate certain invisible social circles that they really wanted to get in uh, into. And he cautions the University of London students against making decisions based on this because the pursuit of these relationships uh, are illusory and lead to bad things. Yeah, I liked his image of peeling an onion. It's like you're you're peeling this onion and peeling this onion, trying to get to the center of it, trying to get to the inner ring, and then eventually you realize you've just peeled through the onion and there's nothing there. <laughs> and it just that's just that was just really funny to me. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a it's a wonderful image and it's it's a it's a in my mind a, a brilliant piece of of speaking or writing, and uh, it's it's again it goes back to. Uh, C.S. Lewis, if I, if memory serves, even says in that essay that you know these inner rings or these sort of subsects of society where different things get get accomplished or different ideas get car, car, compartmentalized, they're not necessarily bad. Once again, it's they're kind of morally neutral, but uh, what is bad about them or what can be bad about them is there's this this human desire to be accepted, right? This whenever you see a group. There's always a thought, even if you look over and you think, ah, I don't really like any of those people, but they're in a group and I'm not in their group and I'm excluded. And because I'm excluded, even though I really don't like those people and I don't want to talk to them, I'm going to go be in their group. So it's it's this kind of weird force or this gravity magnetic force that's pulling us towards these these circles for all the wrong reasons. And right. And the great, the great irony, as he points out, is that as soon as you're in that circle, the circle loses all of its appeal because it's no longer the thing right. that you are excluded <laughs> from. Exactly. You, and then you're just on this, this endless chase for what's, well, where's the next circle and where do I bounce? Yeah. And, he, and go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say he has this great line that I think illustrates this very well. And, and applies to uh, even vices that do not involve the inner ring. But he says, it is the very mark of a perverse desire that it seeks what is not to be had. Right. So mm -hmm. these people are trying to seek access to the inner ring because they want final fulfillment from that, which I think speaks to the value of what a true friendship can actually offer and the danger of what a false friendship uh, holds. Yeah, because you're not right. trying to get into the ring for excellence, sake, or goodness, or virtue. Right, but for its own sake. Yeah. Right. Right, because right. I mean, if if it, it, these things, um, and I think I think he's right about this, is they're they're unavoidable, they're going to emerge naturally, and it's just almost, um, you know, it goes back again to what Aristotle was kind of talking about, where it's possible to have these many friendships of these different sorts, but it's hard to have many or even any really close friendships. But when you delve down into it, if your group, the sphere that you want to be a part of, you want to be a part of it because there's some mutual interest. So say um, you want to form a group around um, 
I don't know, eating ice cream and you all enjoy eating That's ice cream a, good a lot. That's a group, by the way. And, yeah. I'll be in that group. <laughs> exactly, right? And you can you can think about, you know, well, we enjoy eating ice cream because we get together and we talk about all the ice cream things that we enjoy and why we enjoy them. And if you see that and you also enjoy ice cream and you go try to be a part of that group because you also enjoy ice cream and you enjoy talking about it and eating it and all things ice cream, and you will derive great joy from being in this group because you share this mutual interest, then you're not seeking it to be a part of that group. Or even if there is no group, a group will emerge around that. It won't be like, oh, you know, Zach and Sally, we need to form a group to exclude people. And even though we really don't have any mutual interest, why don't we pretend that we do and then exclude people and then maybe kind of bring people in? You know, it's just yeah. this weird funky artificial thing but, but excluding uh, people is so fun <laughs> that's the desire you must stay away from <laughs> yeah i mean this conversation does resonate with me i'm not going to air all my dirty laundry or anything but when i was a kid in elementary school i remember two experiences where i i did something and in order to kind of be accepted by other people mm. or to, to appear cool and therefore to be within some sort of cool crowd, whatever that was. Right. And one time it was um, when it was winter time, and I was talking to these girls on the playground and and for some reason, I don't know why I did it exactly. I think I might have like had a crush or I wanted to be cool or something, but I threw a snowball at this boy and I hit him really hard and <laughs> I got in trouble. <laughs> but I was definitely motivated by this desire to be accepted and liked, if not mm -hmm. by the boy, then by the other girls who were watching me. And that's just like a silly example, but... I think it starts even at the, at a young age where it you does. sometimes just want to be accepted. I think it's ingrained in us. And it's even uh, Lewis talks about it a little bit about how, once again, this is not one of those a lot of times overt walk up and you have group. I'd be in group now. Okay. You're in group now kind of things. It's, this emerges and it's almost pernicious in the way, even if you don't want to be necessarily in this inner group, um, you don't want to be rude or you don't want to be crude or appear um, kind of naive or out of the know or however you want to term it. So as you're just engaging with a person or a couple of people and they sort of hint at you now being a part of their inner ring and it'll be subtle and it'll come up in conversation. It won't be, hey, you want to be in our group. It'll just be, oh, well, we think this and this and people like us or we we act this way in the, the inclusive term, you've now been roped into it and you have a choice at that point. And your choice is either to just accept it and you do so tacitly by just keep allowing the conversation to continue. But you've been put in this awkward situation where you have to say, well, I don't know that I feel that way or I don't think that way and contradict the person who just sort of included you. And even if you don't want to be included, it's still awkward to, um, in some way, seek out exclusion, if that makes sense. So I, one of the things I love about the, the whole inner ring concept is that it gives teeth to what we would normally call peer pressure. I mean, peer pressure is really a mm -hmm. symptom mm -hmm. or a social phenomenon that is explained by the structure of the inner ring. But I think the obvious question for us is how do we avoid this 
this desire to be in the inner ring. It, I mean, it's something that Lewis clearly says is innate to us. I think that resonates with at least the three of us here. So how do we avoid this? Wow. I'm, that, that's, that's the golden question, isn't it? And <laughs> in, in, in so many ways, I, and the desire is always going to be there. I think it's, I think it's in us, it's in our nature. Um, but you know, I think this goes back again to, um, kind of seeking out what virtue is. And I think if you have a good, or if you're grounded in this sense of, you know, what is the proper ordering of a friendship? What is the proper ordering of my relationships? What am I seeking? What am I really seeking? And if you can return to that and say, is being included in this group going to serve the the higher purpose of my life or the, the higher purpose of what my relationships are for, then I think you have at least a foundation um, from which to fend off some of the more nefarious relationships that you can you can have in your life. Yeah, and even if you can't remind yourself of the good that you're seeking overall in your life and how those inner ring relationships might contribute mm-hmm. to it, you could also think just from a more self-serving perspective, these aren't real relationships. These aren't relationships right. that are going to benefit me or make me feel good or make me flourish. They're not going to contribute to my human flourishing it, they're just going to ultimately just be a waste of energy and mm-hmm. emotional energy, if, if, if anything else. And if I can sound very Aristotelian, I think what it comes down to is cultivating the virtues in yourself so that you can have realistic self-assessments and recognize what Sally was saying, that these inner rings actually hold nothing for you and will not help you pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful. It's a... It- for Aristotle, it's all about practice, right? It's habit. Excellence is a habit that you acquire through practice and education. And, and it's not something, one of, one of the nice things about Aristotle, I think, is as austere and intimidating as, as he can be sometimes, he builds in a lot of room for, for error and, and practice and getting better. So I know this is probably a natural point to wrap this up, but I can't help but bring up this question that I often have had with friends. Um and with you, Zach, but can men and women have the kind of true friendship that C.S. Lewis and Aristotle are talking about? Oh, such a good question. It's such Mm -hmm. a controversial question. I remember talking about it in college with one of my good friends and saying yes, and Mm -hmm. then changing my mind. And now I'm definitely, my again, cards on the table. My opinion is no, they cannot Mm -hmm. have that kind of true friendship because in part, to put it crudely, in... In, if you've seen When Harry Met Sally, the sex gets in the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think it – I mean that's just a basic way of stating it. But there's other reasons too. But what do you guys right. think? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I've had this question a lot uh, and really came up in college a lot for obvious reasons because college is a pressure cooker with a bunch of men and a bunch of women living <clears throat> side by side. Um, and it was always interesting though when it came up in mixed company because – the women in the group tended to say the answer was yes, that men and women could be friends in this true friendship sort of way that we're talking about. Yeah, and I think that's what happens in When Harry Met Sally, too. Yeah, I think you're right. But but the men would always say, no, it, it can't happen because of um, – because basically, yeah, there's there's always going to be this sexual tension that will spoil the – uh, what would otherwise be a true friendship right. in the in the Aristotelian formulation? Right, right. Even if the woman isn't thinking, "I want to get you in bed," the guy is going to be thinking that. Which I know, super controversial. I'm sure plenty of people would disagree, but 
maybe true, generally speaking? Yeah. And I mean, I guess to put it in Aristotelian categories, it would be because the friendship can can really not progress past the second form of friendship. Yeah, I think um, it, it, one of the less attractive things here about Aristotle is, is his answer um, would would be no, that it's not possible, but not for not for any of the um, very good reasons that uh, you, Zach, and Sally have laid out, uh, but because, frankly, Greek society, Greek society um, was quite misogynistic, and <laughs> he would not have um, probably viewed it as a possibility because, it, it, because, because one side of that equation would not have the right. mental faculties or... Oh gosh. Or however you want to be able okay, to. Okay, well, yeah. we'll, we'll so discount exactly Arcel's opinion on this exactly, point. <laughs> exactly. Like I said, for a lot of great things um, in the book. There's, he was very wrong us. on that. <laughs> it's not without its detractors. But, right. Um, so what do you think, think, Kevin? You know, I, I, you, you both raise really incredible points. And, and I think um, I think I, I will take I'll take the advice of, of Plato and, and I'll uh, shy away from the absolute. And I won't say that it's it's impossible, but I think you both have pointed out um, there are obstacles and there are very difficult obstacles to overcome. And um, I think if two people could truly overcome those obstacles, then they would be absolutely um, very great friends indeed. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about this. For our listeners, we're going to make this the editorial question of the week. So do you think that men and women can be friends in this in this formulation that we've been talking about from Aristotle? And to help your your decision-making process, if you're still on the fence, I recommend Gilbert Mylander's article from, I think, 2009 in First Things. It's called Men and Women, Can We Be Friends? Oh, 1993, so a long time ago. There's also the movie <laughs> When Harry Met Sally. Yes. When Harry Met Sally. Yes. <laughs> a favorite. Kevin, thanks so much. Always a pleasure to have you on. Absolutely. You guys have a good one. All right, everyone, we're back on Vernacular Podcast, and we're here with Ishan Nath, who is our resident economist and sportscaster. So he's here to talk to us about the NBA playoffs and about Steph Curry. Now, Ishan, you've been on here before to talk about Steph Curry, and now we're bringing you on because Steph was just voted the first unanimous NBA MVP in NBA history, which is pretty spectacular. That's crazy. That is pretty spectacular. It's also pretty crazy that no one else has ever been unanimous before. Yeah. I know. I was thinking that, too, as I was looking at the list of previous MVPs. I was thinking, how, how I mean, is I this the first Michael time, I Michael Jordan really? was an MVP? Yeah. He was an MVP five times, I wow, think. Wow. Yeah. So none of those times he was unanimous. That's crazy. I think some of it is that information is a little bit more widespread now, mm. and people argue about things until they sort of come to a consensus. I don't know. That doesn't happen in any other walk of life. Maybe that's a terrible theory. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it makes sense to me. I, I, the other the other thought I had is that we have more advanced ways of breaking down stats, so it might be easier for a certain player to stand out in more special ways than it was previously. Yeah, I think that's sort of what I was getting at. Well, and I'm just looking at this um, graphic on ESPN, and it said last year, or I guess the two or – closest MVP votes were 98.8%. So that's, I mean, 
That's pretty much 100%. But it's not. <laughs> right, right. But I'm just not. saying, it's not like everyone else was 90%. And, yeah, so that was yeah. Shaq in the 99 to 2000 season, and then LeBron in the 2012 to 13 season. They both had 99.8%, which I think is everybody but one vote. So there was one holdout who said they were not the MVP. Maybe they've just gotten better at eliminating the cranks from the MVP balloting process. Yeah, like that's if you very vote possible. Very silly votes, they might just get rid of you now. Yeah. Well, Ishan, let's talk a little bit about, about Steph Curry and how much he does or does not deserve this. We talked before about how impressive his season has been, but let's put this in some more perspective. Yeah, that's actually what I was going to say is we shouldn't undermine when talking about why he's the first unanimous MVP. It's not just all these broader trends in the voting or whatever. It's also that he just had that spectacular season. It was that much better than anybody else in the league. So I would say this is definitely highly deserved and a good honor to his season. Let's talk first about the three-point record. Uh, He set the record this year. He actually shattered his own record, but he set the record for most three-pointers in the season with 402. How spectacular is that in comparison with history? Uh, it's more off the charts than maybe any other sports record I'm aware of, uh, at least that's been broken in my lifetime because, uh, so the previous record I think was 286, which was Curry last year. And the previous record before that was 272, which was Curry two years ago. (laughs) And, uh, so other than Steph Curry, the most threes ever in a season is 269, which 269 divided by 82 is like three point something like low threes per game. Uh, And Curry made 402, which he played 80 games this season. So he made just over five threes per game. So we're talking about he made like 30 some percent more threes. These are all rough numbers in my head, but he made like 30 some percent more threes per game than anyone else ever has. That's amazing. I saw a graphic. The other thing is he shot 45 0.4% 0.4% from three while taking uh, 11 threes per game. So if you include the fact the shot difficulty combined with the shot percentage, because obviously when you're shooting 11 per game, you're shooting some really tough ones, some really deep ones, guys all over you. Uh, so the fact that he was still among the league leaders, like very close to the top of the NBA, he actually might have led the league, I'm not sure, in percentage is just another statement about just sort of how absurdly unbelievable this was. Yeah. Another stat that caught my eye is that Curry has made 39 more three pointers over this season and last. So the last two seasons than Larry bird did in his entire career, which is 13 years long uh, and 107 more three pointers than Jordan did in his 15 year career. Yeah. And like part of that is that people shoot more threes now, uh, but there's also no one else who could ever have done that besides Steph Curry. Yeah, another crazy thing I saw about him is that since December 1st, Curry has made more three-pointers than the entire Milwaukee Bucks team combined. Wow. That's so insane. This Curry conversation is a nice segue to, to the Western Conference Finals. Do we want to talk about that? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so I think Curry's best game this season and possibly the best game of his NBA career was in Oklahoma city against the thunder earlier this season in an overtime game. He made 12, three pointers scored 46 points and, uh, including the game winner from about 40 some feet near half court, uh, with 
0.9 seconds left. In I remember overtime. seeing those highlights. It was insane. Yeah. So what Curry did against the Thunder, I think he averaged 35 or something like that per game in their three games uh, was pretty impressive. But also all three of those games were really close. And the Thunder, I think, are really the only team in the NBA with the with the talent that the Warriors have. They're not as good of a team and no one's as good of a team. But I think the Thunder legitimately, you could argue, have as much raw talent. So they have probably two of the five best players in the NBA in Russell Westbrook and Kevin or Westbrook and Kevin Durant. That's right. Russell Westbrook was the scoring champion last year. So he led the league in points per game. Kevin Durant led the league in points per game two seasons ago when he was the MVP. Uh, and, uh, I don't know what else I want to say. Um, well, actually it's funny you mentioned those two because the one NBA game I was able to see in person this year was, uh, I was in Orlando and it was an Orlando magic and Oklahoma city thunder game. It actually was amazing because it went to double overtime and it just, I just happened to be there for it. But Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant combined for 91 points in that double wow. overtime game. That's awesome. So part of the problem for the thunder is that because they have these two superstars and they just are overflowing with so much talent, sometimes they get away from playing good team basketball because they just don't need to so much of the time. They just have enough talent to overwhelm people so without really doing anything too special. much on their best players. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and then that runs into trouble, like in the fourth quarter when the other team's really locking in on defense and all, mm. the, all the best players on both teams are on the court and in the playoffs. But I feel like they really found something last series against the Spurs. They got a lot more contributions from some role players than usual, particularly their huge, intimidating-looking 7-1 center from New Zealand, Stephen Adams who's kind of been overpowering people and getting a lot of rebounds and just using his big muscle. Yeah, that's and, a big uh, boy. Yeah, I think he's only like 23 years old. And so he's really sort of still figuring out how to use his body effectively. And he just dominated the Spurs. So that'll be a really interesting thing to watch against the Warriors because the Warriors like to go small a lot and play six foot seven Draymond Green at center. And usually... They get away with it. Green's incredibly strong, can guard guys way bigger than him and keep them off the glass. But the Thunder have been really outmuscling people with some of their big guys, not just Adams, but also Serge Ibaka and Ennis Cantor, their other two big men, have been also playing really well. And so it's going to be a really interesting storyline to see whether the Thunder's size can finally neutralize these small lineups that the Warriors play. Because the Warriors often play these lineups where they have Curry and Thompson, these great shooters out there with three other essentially perimeter players in Draymond Green, Harrison Barnes, and Andre Iguodala or Sean Livingston, their backup point guard. And that's like a really historic break from traditional NBA strategy that now some other teams have been trying to counter is instead of playing like the normal positions with a couple of big guys out there, they just have a bunch of small guys with a, with a couple guys who can sort of do what the big guys do. And that's been working really well for them, but the Thunder have just been overwhelming people so much with their size that it'll be interesting to see if they, they can finally be the team to counter what the Warriors have been doing. So do you, if you were a betting man, do you have a team that you think will win the Thunder-Warriors matchup? Yeah, so what do you think is going to happen? I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think it's going to be a great series. All three of the regular season games were won by the Warriors, but all three of them were close, good games. Uh, the Warriors have to be favored. They won 73 games. They've had the best season in the history of the NBA. I, like everyone else, think they'll win. 
but I don't think I won't be shocked if the Thunder win. Do you think it'll go seven games? I'll be shocked to get a close series. Uh, I don't know. I'm terrible at predictions. My predictions are always terrible. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I think Curry needs to play incredibly well for the Warriors to win. And while he had a few flashes of just absolute mind blowing brilliance when he came back from his knee injury against the Blazers last series, he was also a little bit inconsistent. I think if Curry continues to experience some inconsistencies, the Thunder might win the series. Mm, okay. I think they need full MVP staff. Well, I think a lot of these games will come down to the fourth quarter, and there's there's another really amazing stat from Steph Curry for his fourth quarter performances. So if you take if you take his fourth quarter playing time this season and basically average that out over points per 48 minutes of playing time, he said 50.4 points per 48 minutes, which is the equivalent of 50.4 points per game if, oh if the game was just made up of his fourth quarter performances. Wow. And that's the highest performance ever in the NBA since the league started tracking that stat in 96. The, the runner-up is below 50. It's 48.9, and that's Kobe Bryant in the 05-06 season, basically when he was in his prime. Wow. So if he can just keep it together in the fourth quarter. Right. I imagine Kobe was taking a few more shots per point, too. Right, yeah, probably. So uh, it, so if the Warriors yeah. beat out the the Thunder or the Thunder beat out the Warriors, do you think that the the victorious team in the Western Conference Finals will steamroll either the Cavs or the Raptors? Uh, I don't know about steamroll, and I also don't know about my predictions, but I do think that the Thunder Warriors have to be considered the two best teams left. The Thunder are easily, by most measures, the best team the Warriors have played in the playoffs in the Steve Kerr era. Uh, certainly with the Cavs' injuries last year in the finals, they weren't as good as this Thunder team, and last year's Rockets were nowhere near as good as this Thunder team. So I think this is the stiffest challenge for the Warriors in two years, and the stiffest challenge they'll get. But I also think it's very possible particularly for cleveland to win the championship they the way they were shooting last series against the hawks i don't have the numbers but they broke the three-point rec they broke the playoff record for most three-pointers in a game and most three-pointers in a series and it was a four-game sweep and that's you know it's being compared against series where the other teams played six and seven games but they still had the most three-pointers in a series not just per game which was pretty impressive and the Cavaliers have discovered some new lineups that have been working really well for them. There's a couple guys off their bench who have been sort of like not used a lot. In particular, they have this one seven-footer, 6'11", seven-foot guy named Channing Frye, who's sort of a veteran guy out of Arizona and uh, doesn't, doesn't do a lot of things big men usually do well. He's not a great rebounder. He's not a great defender, but he's a great three-point shooter. And in the playoffs, they've been sticking Frye out there, and he's just been – nailing lots of threes. I think there's one game last round against the Hawks where he made seven threes in like 23 minutes. Uh, and so I think the Cavs have become actually more dangerous and have started to look better and better in recent weeks and should be considered like a real contender to win the championship. I also think people are perhaps somewhat unfairly overlooking the Raptors Cavs series for its intrigue. I was listening to ESPN radio or CBS radio or something while driving yesterday. And the announcer was like, even the Raptors mascot knows they're going to get dominated by the cats. There's <laughs> no reason to ever turn on one of these games. And, oh, wow. uh, 
that seems a little strong. The Raptors yeah. won 56 games. They had a great season. They beat the Cavs two games out of three. Granted, the lineups in those games, oops, uh, I shook my fork by accident and the game picks got scared. Uh, granted, the lineups in those Raptors-Cavs regular season games were not exactly what we'll see in the playoffs. Both teams have changed up their rotations and strategies a little, but they still they beat them two games out of three. They had a great season. They're a really good team. And while some people choose to look at sort of the glass half empty view of the way the Raptors have looked the last few weeks, well, well, to to back up for a second, the Raptors have not looked very good the last few weeks. They just barely well, historically squeaked. they just don't do well in the playoffs anyway. That's right. So this is their first time ever in the conference finals. Um, actually, their first round win against the Pacers, I believe, was the first time they'd ever won a seven game series. They'd won shorter five game series back when the first round used to be five games um and so these are the first two seven game series wins ever as a franchise i'm pretty sure uh but basically they squeaked by the seventh seeded pacers in seven games in the first rounds did not look very impressive their best player kyle lowry didn't even shoot 40 percent in any of their games which i think i think there was i think uh I think it was a record for, I think it was the first time a team's leading scorer in a series they won didn't even hit 40% of their shots in any of the seven games. Um, and so the glass happened, and they didn't look very good against the Heat, too. The Heat had a lot of injuries. Uh, to be fair, the Raptors also have one very major injury, which is their starting center is out and will miss at least game one, probably game two, maybe more of the series. Um, although his backup, a guy named Bismack Biombo, who's sort of a young player who hasn't made much of an impact on the league. He's been playing really well and uh, brings some things to the table that the injured starter doesn't. But I'm getting off track a little. What I was trying to say is that the glass half empty view of the Raptors is that they've not looked very good in their first two series. But the glass half full view is that they managed to win both of those series without getting really anything impressive out of their two best players until maybe games five, six, and seven of the Heat series, the most recent one. So towards the end of that Heat series, Kyle Lowry, their best player, started to heat up. And I think he had 35 points in game seven. He made like five or six threes and had like similarly good shooting performances in games five and six. Uh, so I think it's a good sign for the Raptors that they've been able to make it this far without without really playing their best basketball until maybe game seven of the second series. Um, and I'm hopeful that could be a fun series, both because competitive, exciting basketball is fun and because I just think the Toronto fans are more fun than maybe any other fans in the NBA. If you turn on one of their playoff games, it seems like the entire city of Toronto is gathered outside the stadium at the town square. And they're all just like jumping around and cheering throngs, watching the games on like these massive 50 foot video screens together. That's really funny. That sounds fun. And given that it's, I'm pretty sure a whole country is rooting for them. Oh, absolutely. They've had no basketball success basically in the history of their country. Uh, unless you count Canadian guys like Steve Nash, who have been successful for American franchises. This is basically the most successful spring in the history of Canadian basketball. Uh, And I I just think that's super fun. I think their home court advantage is great, and I really want to see a fun series. I'm not guaranteeing it'll be fun or anything, but I definitely am more hopeful that it'll be a close, well-contested series than these CBS radio guys I was listening to yesterday seem to be. 
Yeah, fair enough. Well, thanks for updating us on all of that. We'll have to uh, see if the season progresses in accordance with the predictions you laid out. <laughs> Don't worry, we won't hold you to them. No. Yeah, I'm terrible at predictions. <laughs> well, I do think you've outlined some of the things to watch, though. So yes. I'll be looking forward to watching the rest of the season. Thanks so yeah. much, as always, for coming on, Ishan. It was great to talk to you about all things NBA, and we'll look forward to next time. Thanks for having me, as always. All right, we're back to wrap things up with our penultimate episode of season three. That's right. We have one more episode before season three is over, and we're going to take a week off for Memorial Day weekend and some travel. So we'll be back in two weeks with a conversation about whether women can have it all. So stay tuned for that. It'll be pretty. It'll be a pretty great conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. At least provide some good fodder for conversation and feedback. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> while yeah. you're waiting for season four to come out. Definitely. <laughs> so yes, two weeks from. This day, well, two weeks from the day we're releasing this. <laughs> I don't know what day you're listening to this, but <laughs> we will have episode 10 available for you to listen to. Right. And we don't have an inbox because we already read Nathan's tips of the week, which are we're going to count as our inbox. Yep. And we're just going to remind you to follow us on Twitter at Vernacular Pod. And Catch us on Facebook at facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. Check out our website, vernacularpodcast.com, and you can go to our blog where you will see all of the posts on Medium that correspond with each of the episodes. You can find all the links that you need, and you can email us with your feedback and questions and tips of the week and whatever you want to say to us at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. Also, very, very, very exciting announcement. Not really. But if you happen to be on Android and use Google Play or you use Google Play on your computer, you can listen to our podcast now on Google Play as well as iTunes. Great. So many options. And to get that link, just head to our website, vernacularpodcast.com. Go to the About page, and you can see the link to our Google Play compilation there. Awesome. Well, I think that's about all we have for this penultimate episode, as Sally (laughs) mentioned. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. I'm by your side